Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 119 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. Have you ever talked to somebody or been in a situation or gone through a few days of your life or a phase and thought to yourself, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. No matter what I do, somebody's mad at me or no matter what decision I make, it's wrong. This is a pretty common, I think, feeling that people have. I don't think I'm unique in this. But I was talking with my therapist, Carolina, and I know I'm not supposed to call her my therapist because she's an online entrepreneurial coach, but I'll tell you right now, the woman is a genius. So we were talking and I was sharing with her an experience I had gone through with Gracie and Kenny that was frustrating me. And she's looking at me and she gets a look on her face when I'm saying something and she's got a thought in her head about what might really be going on. And she said to me, you're creating a double bind. Have you ever heard of that? And I'm like, a double bind? I said, no, I haven't heard that term, but it doesn't sound very good. And it isn't. In simplest terms, a double bind is when you're given two options and neither one of them will give you a positive outcome. So it could be two different people and you care about both of these people. One of them wants you to choose blue. One of them wants you to choose green. You have equal love and admiration for both, or maybe they're your co-supervisors. And no matter what choice you make, one or the other will be upset. So you know, even though you're going to make one person happy, the other person isn't and vice versa. Or it can be one person who creates a double bind. So no matter what you do, they're not happy and they're creating this. And this is where it takes it a bit sort of more a step further than, you know, just a, just a contradicting choice to make. So I'm going to use me as an example because I was creating a double bind for Kenny. And this is a common one that you see on Facebook memes a lot. I move very quickly and I don't spend a lot of time on housework because I do it as I go. So in a given day, I can accomplish 50 tasks that have nothing to do with the house. And in the process of accomplishing all those tasks, still manage to move two or three loads of laundry along, empty the dishwasher, pick up the clutter in the living room, run a vacuum through the living room. You know, I manage to do these things. So when I stop doing them, people notice. And oftentimes they'll say, I never even see you do this. But I do, I do it. And so what happens is I build up resentments. So Kenny will say, well, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. To my response to that is, I shouldn't have to tell you I'm not your mother, which I truly believe. But what I'm doing there is I'm demoralizing him a little bit by putting him down, by subtly saying, you're nothing but a child. I'm not your mother, do it yourself. So Kenny's reaction to this after being with, you know, we've been together over 20 years now, you know, maybe passive aggressive. So we, we, we develop an unhealthy dynamic. So I stopped cleaning up dirty dishes for a while because I just got sick and tired of being the only one that did them. And the more dishes I did, the less likely Kenny and Gracie were to take care of their dirty dishes. It was like, oh, Barb's doing it. So that's fine. I'll just leave it here. So I stopped doing it. And then Kenny noticed eventually. And he, so we started picking up all these dishes and he went to grab Gracie's coffee cup. And I said, no, no, leave it there. It's not your coffee cup. Like, no, she needs to clean it. He was offering to help. And ultimately that would help me, right? Just like, I get mad at Gracie for helping Kenny because she wants to help me. 
So I'm like, why do you always help him? And in her mind, if she helps him, then it keeps them both out of my hair and I can get a podcast episode recorded. So I get angry at her for helping him. And all she's trying to do is help. So that's a pretty complex double bind. But my thought process is that I just want it the way I want it because I want it. And control is really what's behind most double binds. Not necessarily a desire to be mean or to control in an unhealthy way, but that's exactly what happens. Another one I did with Kenny, we were cleaning up, emptying the bathroom. And so I had a meticulous plan in order to do this. And Kenny started doing something else. And I'm like, Kenny, come on, we're emptying the bathroom. Like, you know, I, I got frustrated. So I went upstairs to do something, collect bins or whatever. And I came back down and sure enough, the bathroom was empty. Well, there were all these little magnets and things that I was going to put in a little box. I think I had gone up to get the little box. So I'm immediately angry. So I storm out, Kenny, what did you do with all the bathroom stuff? And he just looked at me like, you told me to empty it. So I emptied it. I'm like, you know, I immediately assumed he threw things away. No, I didn't throw it away. But right there, I was already angry at him because he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. And then when he did what I wanted him to do, I was still angry at him because he didn't do it right. <laughs> so I saw a Facebook meme once and it was, or not even a meme, it was like a story or an article about a couple in a relationship. And the husband would, when it was his turn to do the dishes, he would do them, but he would do a sloppy job and they were dirty and the wife would have to rewash them. Or he did laundry once and he put bleach in it and it stained her dress. And so now she had bleach stains on her dress. And so she would have to replace the dress or maybe dye the dress, you know, to, you know, to solve the problem. And so she would get angry and resentful. And then the boyfriend would defer to, well, if I don't do a good enough job, why don't you just do it then? You, you always have to redo it anyway. Why should I do it? So she looked at this as his unwillingness to help. And he looked at it as, it doesn't matter what I do, you're going to hate it. And so she stopped correcting it. She let the dishes stay only partially clean and she wore the dress with the bleach stain on it. And in the story, she was having a dinner party. And so the wife sets the table. The husband notices these dishes look terrible. And she said, well, you're the one that did the dishes and you always tell me that they're fine. So you're right. I'm not going to redo the dishes. And she put on the black dress with the bleach stain. You're going to wear that? Well, yep, I am. You know, you said it's fine. So this is the double bind becoming a real sparring match. And that's not really what I'm getting into here. It's not what relates to me the most. But when Carolina brought this up and showed me the double bind, it got me to thinking about my own life and why, especially in times of trauma, my desire to control and my rage at when I'm losing control borderlies on like utter fear and terror. And of course, looking at my childhood and then because of my childhood, the relationships I've chosen to be in, it's not surprising that I have this sort of cycle of finding people that will put me in a double bind and then creating double binds for the people in my life. So Carolina used an example of a child sitting at the dinner table. Now she's with her parents, this child, right? And the father has worked all day and really just wants a quiet dinner with nobody talking. He just would like to have dinner be silent. The mother chats away and wants to know all about the daughter's day. The husband knows that the wife likes to chatter and the wife knows the husband likes quiet. A healthy alternative would have been to set up a compromise. Okay, for the first 20 minutes of dinner, we're going to chat. And then we'll have the last 20 minutes will be silent and we'll ponder. That's just a simple example. But these parents didn't do that. So the mother would ask the daughter, tell me what you did in school today. And the daughter was in a conundrum. If she didn't tell her mother what she did, her mother would continue to ask. And now there would be a bickering and argument, which would upset the father. If she chatted away to her mother and answered her questions, the mother would be happy. Again, the father would remain unhappy. 
So he was never going to get a silent dinner. The mother was always going to have some measure of control, but it all came down to the child. The child is the one that bore the punishment because now she had two angry parents who took a lot of their anger out on her. That really stuck with me. It stuck with me a lot. We talked a lot about people who, who die by suicide, people who, who get to a point where living is impossible. And whether or not people have done this in their lives or the people that love them the most have done it, very often constant exposure to double bind, especially when you're little and developing, actually affects how your brain processes information and how your brain processes a sense of self. So the term gaslighting gets thrown around a lot. I think it's overused. When I think back to my life, I remember low fat was a big thing. Of course, they just filled up the food with sugar. So it was still super unhealthy. Then it was no sugar. <laughs> then they put all this fake sugar in it. You know, like all the terms that we use, you know, oh, don't eat butter. It's unhealthy. Okay. Only eat butter because margarine's terrible. We're given information all the time. Some of this nationwide stuff you see on the news, propaganda, creates a double bind for the people buying in because it creates a situation where they're utterly dependent on what they hear, like a population, and they are told what to do, but then they're told that that was the wrong thing to do. They really should do this. And then they're told that that was the wrong thing to do. They really should now do this. So eventually what you have is a population who feels like no matter what they choose, somebody's going to eventually tell them it was wrong. So what's the point? And it's that giving up that gives the perpetrator of the double bind a measure of victory because now they have now they have a very, very dependent person or they have a person or a population to feed their illness, whatever it is. So I got to thinking about my life and my childhood and so much of my childhood is conflicting. And I remember before the abuse happened, when I was really little, I, I had a couple of neighbors, neighbors who were very, very staunch Catholics and they were very, very, and I say this with no insult to people who practice Catholicism in a healthy way or practice it lovingly or whatever. But this was two families who were very, very, very into the use of religious teachings as control and to instill fear. We were Episcopalian and these two families who were good friends were Catholic and they went to the same church. And we went to a, a different church. We went to St. Paul's and they went to St. Peter's. Oftentimes, if I ever did anything wrong, I was told by one or two of these moms that it's because I wasn't Catholic, that I was a sinner. My sin hadn't been you know, erased by a Catholic baptism. There are still people who believe this, but at any rate, it was troubling to me because I oftentimes knew that in my heart of hearts, I was not doing a bad thing, that they thought it was bad, that maybe my own mother didn't think it was bad. And the response to that would be, well, because your mother's wrong too. And so here I am surrounded by adults. It's not my place as a child to say you're wrong, although I often did, but I have this inner conflict now with no matter what choice I make, somebody's version of God is going to tell me I'm wrong. And as a very small child, I had a great fear of God. We, we would go to church and there was a man in my church named Ozzy Strong and he was tall and he had white hair and a really loud voice. There was another man, Nathaniel Sawyer, and he sang a, a solo on Easter and he had this deep voice. These men, these huge giant to me at the time men, scared the crap out of me. And I would sit in church like just horrified and mesmerized by them. And oftentimes my nightmares were that I you know, I was eating candy before dinner and I got caught by one of these people and I was destined to a lifetime in hell. So I developed very quickly a conflict around God, like, because at the same time, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We were told that Jesus loved us and that God loved us. And if Jesus or God loved us, then why 
Why would he allow grownups to use their words to scare children into behaving? It was really, really hard on me. And I remember one time I took my neighbor, Andrea, to the park to show her a tree that had been struck by lightning. And we walked up the street. It was really two houses, not even a block. But you had to cross a street and Andrea wouldn't cross. So I crossed and ran to the tree and pointed to her. See, this is the tree. This is the tree. And she looked at it and she was logically afraid because she knew how much trouble she'd get in. And when I was walking back across the street, her mother came charging up the street. Now, granted, where we were standing, you could still see their house, which is, I think, why her mother saw. And she just spanked me and yelled at me and just told me God would punish me. And I was helpless and hopeless. And I was horrified. And my mother came out and started yelling at her. So now we have the mothers screaming at each other. And Andrea and I are just standing there sort of dumbfounded. I learned very quickly that no matter what I did, those neighbors were going to criticize it because they didn't approve of my mother and her behaviors. And I wasn't Catholic. I didn't go to the right church and God would punish me for this. That's a hard pill to swallow when you're five and six and seven. And, you know, the undertones of dysfunction were evident in my home already, although, you know, I didn't know at the time. When my abuse started, the sexual abuse, I was, you know, maybe seven. It was logical to me that my immediate thought was that this was my fault. And so then came this whole circle of don't tell. Lying is bad. And I remember in second grade getting in trouble for lying to my teacher. I gave her a different phone number so that when she called, nobody would answer and I wouldn't get in trouble for something I had done at school. And at parent-teacher conferences, my parents found out about this. So my parents came home and I got put over my dad's knee and spanked and I got in big trouble for lying. Now, let me be clear. (laughs) These two parents told me all the time, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell right? Don't tell mom I had beer while I watched the game. Don't tell dad, uncle Tom came. Don't tell. And so for my whole life, I would get in trouble for the very thing, the two people in my life who mattered the most, three people actually, because Tom was party to this, four people actually, because my abuser would say, don't tell. I was told, don't tell, you must lie. So I remember once asking my mother, for some clarification, which is another big factor of the double bind. There really is no room for clarification. I would say to my mom, so you want me to lie? If daddy asks, was Uncle Tom here? I'm supposed to lie. And she had a hard time saying, yes, you need to lie. So she would sort of defer. Well, just don't say anything. Just don't tell him. Tell him to ask me, you know, defer. But basically I was told to lie. And then I was, I would get in trouble for lying. I remember another time a bunch of us dug holes in the dirt in the backyard and we'd pee in there because what little kid doesn't want to pee outside? The dirt would just absorb the pee. It would go right down into the ground. And this was fascinating to us. Now, granted, we could have just poured water in there. And I think that's how it started. (laughs) But Bobby, so Andrea's sister, he's like, no, let's pee in it. And being a boy, he could just pee. So he peed into the hole really easily. So then we all wanted to do it. So there was like four or five of us in there. We were all in there peeing into this hole. And oh my gosh, somebody's dad came out. I don't even remember whose, but we got in so much trouble. And the gist of the trouble wasn't even the urine in the dirt. It was the fact that we pulled our pants down in front of each other to pee in the hole, right? Little as I know, I wasn't the only one in that group of people that was experiencing sexual abuse. But the contradiction there doesn't even need explanation. Like we weren't doing anything sexual. We were peeing in a hole, but- we were in so much trouble, made to feel dirty and sinful and just screamed at. And of course, you know, Bobby and Andrea's mother had no trouble blaming it on me for the most part. 
one of the other families, Jack and Jill's family, they were also Episcopal. So it's like, you know, Catholicism, Episcopalianism, what is it? Which way gets you to heaven, right? That was a huge, huge double bind for me. And all I could do was talk to God at night and say, please, God, please, God, please, God. And I looked at everything bad happening to me as my punishment for making the wrong choice. Understand now there was no right choice. Any choice by somebody would have been the wrong choice for me. There have been studies that link this double bind scenario to brain disorders that were thought to be biological, genetic in nature. Schizophrenia is one. Schizophrenia is very disordered thinking. When people are in schizophrenic episodes, nothing makes sense. They're functioning on all sorts of beliefs that to the bystander make no sense. They're finding that lots and lots, a high percentage of adult schizophrenia sufferers grew up in families where double bind was a way of life. So what does that look like when you're little? You have somebody, you know, I love you. I love you. I'm your mother. I love you. Then the mother, corporal punishment, hits the child a lot, withholds food, name calls, you know, just negative abusive relationship and information and treatment of the child. But I love you. So, okay, what is love? Is love supposed to protect me and keep me safe? Or does love mean I'm going to get punched and hurt and starved and ridiculed? The answer would be yes. To somebody in a double bind setting, no matter what that child did, it would never be quite enough. Something would happen. Now think of children too. Developmentally speaking, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old cannot discern right from wrong at a level that, that a parent can. I gave this example with Jack that, you know, he likes to jump. He doesn't know that jumping on somebody's face isn't a good idea. He's jumping. And I see sometimes Gracie will get impatient with him really quickly. It's like, Gracie, come on now, child development, let it kick in. If you're giving him the invitation to jump on your back, you can't yell at him for jumping on your head. You can talk to him about it and ask him not to and try to retrain or get up and do a different movement, but you can't get mad at him because a two-year-old can't discern that a back is okay and a head isn't until multiple, 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 multiple times and, and getting the feedback that's not punitive no matter what. So in, a, in an abusive situation, parents have unbelievable power over their children. And so they create a double bind like that. Sexual abuse and, and grooming goes into the double bind. So in the beginning, so say somebody's being groomed for you know, sexual abuse. In the beginning, the double bind is a positive thing. So, hey, come for a walk with me and we'll get an ice cream. And so you go for the walk. You know, you're not supposed to. Don't worry, it's okay. You're safe with me. It's okay. Your mom said it's fine. And then you go and you have the ice cream. Okay, you had fun, right? Okay, well, this is our secret. You know, we'll do it again, but you can't tell. So you have this wonderful time where the only decision you could have made was to say no and go home, but you weren't really given the choice of that decision because you're a child and you're with an adult that you know and trust. And that adult is telling you this is what's going to happen and how fun it will be. That's what a child would, would buy into. As this continues, the double bind begins to take a bit of a more sinister twist because now some unknowns come in. What the perpetrator is doing is raising the level of potential abuse, calculating how you respond, and then adjusting their behavior to accommodate that. So slowly but surely, now you're not only willing to go get the ice cream, but you're willing to take money or you're willing to, here, well, I'm going to take some pictures of you, pose this way, pose this way. And you know, these things are wrong, but they're subtle enough that you do them anyway. And then comes the piece of, well, I thought you loved me. I feel very bad that you don't want to come with me now. And now you're imposing sort of guilt. So what you're doing is creating a no-win situation for the child. They have the idea that they have choices, but none of those choices get them either resolution or free from the situation. 
So then I got to thinking about my adult life and my triggers and why certain things bother me. So I had several really, really good relationships, relatively healthy relationships, and I could never stay in a healthy relationship. I always needed an out. That doesn't really sit into the double bind right now, but it's a, it's a, it's a place I put myself. It was my internal double bind that I created for myself. I have like a boyfriend, David, and he's kind and nice and loves me. And maybe, maybe some things are a little predictable and all of this. And I settle in and I get comfortable. And this is where in my broken mind, the danger starts. Uh-oh, I'm comfortable. I feel safe. I better become vigilant. People that are, have been abused as youngsters will recreate trauma because that's what they know. And that's where they function best. You have to have something you have to fix. If there's nothing to fix, then you're just waiting around for something to break. Does that make sense? So that's my internal double bind. So I, I had a lot of relationships while I was going out with David, you know, one night stands or whatever. And I would create this, this horrible, all the self, self-loathing and everything. I'm a bad person. I don't deserve him. Then I do things to prove I don't deserve him. And then he, in the effort not to want to lose me, does everything he can to get me to love him. So I remember a specific fight we had where he didn't have a job. I can't remember what it was exactly, but he had taken a job with Nike and he was working in an office. And I think I had said something to him about, you know, you get this whole college degree, you know, you're not even teaching. That had been something, you should get a teaching job. And he didn't want to teach, you know? And then he got this job and I gave him, and I said, well, then just get any job. It was all around him getting a job and he got a job. And rather than just congratulate him on the job, I yelled at him. I can't believe you took that job. It's not even in your degree. And his response to me was, you told me to get a job and I got a job. Like he couldn't win. He was never going to win with me. And I was damaged enough at that time that he was never going to win with me. There was too much that I needed to fix to really create a relationship where I didn't need the double bind, right? Those things have come up for me. All one conversation with Carolina, by the way, it's been in my head. Watching the dynamics at my family Thanksgiving (laughs) clarified things, the double bind, right? I think sometimes it's just a way that we exert control when we're feeling out of control. It sounds like it would always be mean. And I will share some very, very purposeful mean double binds when I talk a little bit about Roy, but it just got me thinking about propaganda. So there was a movie and I've mentioned this movie before, Hilary Swank starred as the teacher when she taught in a classroom full of kids that were really struggling and she, she totally engaged them and she got them reading books and they read Anne Frank. In that lesson about Anne Frank, she talked about propaganda and there was a lot of racial tensions in her classroom and she held up a picture of like a caricature She talked about propaganda and how people make fun of people by what they look like. And a lot of the Eastern European Jews had big noses. And so that became a big joke, right? Like that's how you know how someone's Jewish by their nose. And, you know, no one can control their features, right? I think all different races have ways that they look that are ridiculed and made fun of. This is propaganda. The other side of propaganda is creating a double bind in the community. And it's a way that people like Hitler gain control. So I went to The Sound of Music and I was watching the reactions of some of the, in the play, now this is a play, but Austria is going to be taken over by the Third Reich. And some people are against it and they flee. Others are totally opposed and they get yarded off to concentration camps or executed. So the others in the middle just make believe everything's fine. And one of the lines in the play was, you just have to sit back. Don't get involved. Just do what they say. It will be over soon, right? 
by taking that choice, doing what they say, ultimately you can't do anything. No matter what you do, it will be wrong. And your the scope of what you're allowed to do narrows and narrows and narrows. You can't be a defender of the Third Reich and live in Austria and be nice to anyone that doesn't fit that description. So Aryan supremacy, blonde hair, blue-eyed, non-Catholics, right? You had to believe in Jesus. So Catholics went to the gas chambers and Jews went to the gas chambers. People with developmental disabilities went to the gas chambers. Anyone that wasn't a very narrow focus would be killed. So if you were a family person and your family was living in a German-occupied place at the time, and you had an auntie who was, you know, a pagan, or, you know, your little sister had Down syndrome, you had to hide these people. You couldn't admit that they were okay and that you cared for them. If you did, all of you would, would suffer the punishment. Well, this isn't as clear as a damn if you do, a damn if you don't. There's no right decision there. You have, to, you have to break the law to protect the people you love. And then when you get punished for protecting them, you all get punished anyway. It's really hard to explain, but the, the ultimate thing is it's a measure of control, right? And it's all twists of language. So for example, the mother, like, I love you, sweetie. That's a genuine expression of love. But if it's, if it's with a nasty expression or body language that's, that's you know, stomping around or is immediately followed by, I love you and that's why I have to do this, that's a very conflicting message. Political parties do this. Entire populations of people get put into a double bind. If you have alliance to your party, your political party, then you have to stand firm on, on your beliefs. And so what happens is political parties then assign beliefs to other parties. And this happens all the time here in America with the Republicans and the Democrats. And then name calling comes in. The bigots and the snowflakes, like find your way to categorize large groups of people. In presidential campaign years, you have a whole group of people that allegedly have alliance to one thing. So all the Republican candidates. And the first thing they do is beat each other down. So no matter what their opponents do, it will be wrong because they want to appear right. But no matter what they do, that will appear wrong by their opponents because their opponents also want to appear right. And so the information that comes out is designed to create an inability to respond in a positive way. All you can do is agree and go vote. And then you have the Democrats essentially doing the same thing, right? So we all have our social and political agendas. And if you have any differing opinion, you can be looked at as a traitor. You can be looked at as being dishonest and not being genuine. Like I always say, I take my half out of the middle. There are certain aspects of Republican government that I prefer over Democratic government and vice versa. But it's very hard if I'm in a room full of staunch Republicans to say, I don't, you know, I feel like you over-exaggerate this and I disagree with this. I'm immediately ridiculed and insulted and told I don't know anything and immediately name-called the opposing party. And then if I were to be in a room full of Democrats and say, well, I really think this makes more sense, then the same thing happens. And what happens is it's not just being told that you're wrong. It's the use of language to turn it around on the victim, on the person, the person who is on the receiving end of the double bind. So when I was creating a double bind for Kenny, he's the one who was like, well, what? I'm so confused now. I thought, I thought you wanted me to do this, so I did it. I thought you wanted me to do that, and so I did it. It doesn't matter what I do or how I do it, it's going to be wrong. And, and that's what happens when you sort of control masses of people. And sadly, it's the small group of people executing these double binds control millions of people's behaviors and beliefs and actions. And it can be alarming sometimes. But it's really interesting to look at. It stayed in my head 
for a long time. So in looking at my job loss, well, in looking at getting involved with Roy in the first place, which led to my job loss, the double binds were almost immediate. So for example, our first Christmas, we agreed together while he dictated that let's not spend money on each other. Let's just get each other nice little things. And so I gave him a couple of Christmas ornaments that belonged to me. And I made him a CD with my favorite Mozart music on it. And that was my Christmas present to him. And I, and I had done exactly as he'd asked. And I couldn't wait to see his response. And he liked it. I explained the historical significance of the Christmas ornaments. I said, I know you don't listen to classical music, but these horn concertos are my favorite. So I'm just giving you a piece of me. So we get to his house, comes out with this big box. And I look at him like, we weren't supposed to. So he bought me a violin, a beautiful $700 violin a really, really nice violin. And I just looked at him dumbfounded. And I said, you said we were supposed to get something little. So there was immediate disparity in the gifts. So he blew it off and sort of pashot it. I just want to hear you play. Well, he also knew I hadn't played violin in 10 years, but that I took lessons at school, that I borrowed a violin and, and I learned if I had one, I would take lessons again. So he couched it around that. But it, it was very, very evident in the days and weeks following that the violin had a bigger meaning than just, oh, I really wanted to get you something that I thought you would like. It was a mechanism and nothing, nothing I did was right. So I got it tuned and I, and I got it playable and, you know, and I purchased music and I, and I actually played for quite a while. I really, I really enjoyed it. When we were having disagreements, he'd go back to the violin. So the double bind, his birthday is February. So I went out of my way to get him present that I knew he would like. He mentioned that he didn't have a lot of money. And so he didn't get architect magazines anymore. So I got him a year-long subscription to the architectural record because I knew he liked architecture. There was a shop in Concord that he loved. And so I bought him all these gifts from that particular shop, some chocolates that I knew he liked. And it had like five or six things. And I wrapped the box. I wrapped them individually. I was so excited. And we would see each other at his house, which was here in Concord, which was empty and not heated. And it was very rustic. And we'd, we'd meet and spend some time there and bundled up in blankets and everything else. And so I brought him the present and what I thought would be, I thought he would love it. You know, like who doesn't love a box full of things that you've expressed that you like? And he looked at it and he goes, well, this is a typical first birthday present. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, I guarantee in five years, you won't give me a present like this. And I'm like, okay, but it's today. It's things that you like. And so he went through it and he, and he liked everything, but every response was couched with like, whatever, like, it's not that important, or I don't know why you did this, or you certainly misinterpreted. At the end of the opening of the present, he didn't say thank you initially. I'm like, well, do you like it? Is it okay? Here I am begging for feedback that I did the right thing. And he finally said, of course, I like it. Thank you. One of them was a little vase and he used the vase for a long time. And, but I remember just being thrown off by that. Like, okay, when I get him a little gift, it's not enough because he compares it to the big gift he got me. And then when I get him a big gift, he says, well, yeah, of course you got it for me now because the relationship's new. No matter what gift I got, there was going to be something wrong with the gift. And it put me in a situation where I felt utterly confused and like, I don't understand. Like, what, what did you want me to do? When I would ask for clarification, the clarification was immediately turned around and shut down. Or it's no big deal. Stop. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Well, it was a big deal because I presented this present to him and his response was not, yay, oh my God, thank you. You know, it was just, it was bizarre. I do remember the following year, that following summers, my birthday present was insignificant. I don't even know that we, I don't remember it. And I remember most beautiful gifts that he gave me. So 
that's the double bind. And it sets up powerlessness, it sets up conflict, it sets up, sets up fear. My job loss was the same way. Chris Rath was one of those leaders that if, if you were in her radar, nothing you could do was going to be okay. So I had done all sorts of things to help her. I you know, worked extra hours. I worked on things. I helped her get a bunch of teachers dismissed for sexual abuse of students. I, I went out of my way to help her. And when I took a job at the high school, she immediately said to me, don't you become like this teacher? It was a teacher she didn't like. I'm like, well, I'll be myself, you know, but she had this sort of, but me being myself was going to be a recipe for disaster. And so when, when I started the whole situation helping Roy in his divorce from Amy, I missed a bit of school. I fought for a restraining order and I used school station. I used school email, right? So I realize now, and I did this at the request of Roy and of a, of a school employee. So I'm doing what I think is right. I'm being told, do this because this is the right way to do this. And I'm doing things that are happening because I put myself in a very dangerous situation at the request of Roy. And he's on my side, sort of. And so the very thing I'm doing to protect my family and to protect myself at the urgency of Roy, who I'm helping, ends up being a major factor in, in one of the threats to get me fired. And so I can either resign or I can fight this and tell the truth and get fired. I have two people here, Chris Rath, who creates double binds as a person in power in a school district, and Roy, who creates a double bind in romantic relationship control. And then the dynamic of Amy and Roy, who continue to this day to create double binds for a lot of people in their lives. This was the eye-opening sort of set aha moment for me over the weekend. So of course, what comes to me now is how do I step out of this? I think all of the things that happened to us happened for, for learning, right? Sometimes that sounds punitive. Like, you know, I'm the one with a dead kid because I have all the lessons to learn. Believe me, I've said that a lot. But I think that regardless of why, good and bad things happen to us all the time and everything is, is a vehicle to learn something new. So I've just been pondering and pondering and pondering. What am I supposed to learn from this, this double bind? But it's all communication, how we communicate with one another, how we say what we say. You know, and I've, I've looked and looked at, are there ways that I created a double bind for Roy? And he had so much control in our relationship that the other one that comes to mind a lot is I will tell him something and he'll listen, or I think he's listening. So let me give an example. A lot of the details around Molly's death. So the, I, I had just come back from Amsterdam with Roy and then Molly died. So that whole week at the hospital, we were texting back and forth. We're still communicating quite a bit. I shared with him just about everything, but I mean, lots and lots of things, you know, I didn't or not to the extent that he would find out. So then two years later, we were having a conversation. I was talking about the lawsuit and I went through all of the things, you know, the deposition and all the horrible things I was asked. And so we got talking about his role and we got talking about Molly and the tumor and all the details around the tumor killing her. And he said, you never told me that. And I'm like, I did tell you. What would then happen is he would say, he would utilize that in an argument. He would say to me, you always claim you told me things and you never tell me things. So we need to get together and you need to tell me everything. So we would get together. And the last time this happened was at lunch in Exeter, shortly after Jack's birth. And it was around just my emotional well-being after Jack's birth and after Molly's death. And we had spent a ton of time together, which he classified as not a relationship. And I understood he wanted to move on and have a new relationship. And please understand, Roy, that you're just a big piece of what makes me okay. And so we had this whole back and forth, back and forth. The gist of it was he would say, don't text me all the time. So I would stop texting him. 
And then two or three days would go by and then he would text me and call me out of the blue and send me pictures. And I, and I would think, oh, everything's fine. And so I would start texting him back. And then he'd get here and stop texting me so much. What don't you understand about don't text me? Well, you were texting me and then this would pick a fight, right? So it's the double bind. If I don't text him, he's going to text me back to get me to text him. It's that manipulative thing where you, you constantly nudge somebody until they explode and the person who explodes gets in trouble. So this is what would happen. And so, so at our conversation, we, we sit down at a table for lunch and I said, all right, I'm just going to start at the beginning and I'll go quickly. So I start talking and I'm explaining to him the very things he said I never told. You always claim you tell me things. So I got maybe two minutes into the conversation and he interrupts me and he goes, are you about done? This is pretty boring. Are you just going to sit here and bore me? And I, I just stopped. I, I was dumbfounded. And of course I got panicky. These people sitting next to us both turned and looked because it was clear they could hear enough. It's a small restaurant. It was clear that, okay, here's what I, what you said I didn't tell you. So I'm going to tell you again so that you know, and he wouldn't. And then I realized in that moment that this happened all the time. I remember playing him an episode of something from Virginia and I in the process of writing the book. And he did the same thing. You never told me that, you know, it would be nice for you to share these things. And then I start to share and he says, okay, that's boring. I don't know why you're telling me this. You know, you couldn't be any more boring. Double bind. If I don't tell him, he's going to yell at me that I didn't tell him. And if I tell him, he's going to tell me I'm boring and it's not important and to stop talking. Rather than get angry and defend myself, what this does, because it's subtle in the beginning, Christmas presents and birthday presents, you don't really notice it. And it just puts you off kilter a little bit. I remember one time putting my hand in his and he loved it. No, you have such small hands and you're so delicate. Maybe a few months later, I put my hand in his. Why do you always want to hold hands? Okay, so we don't hold hands. And then we're side by side. Walk with me, be with me. And then he's 10 feet in front of me. I'm like, why aren't you waiting for me? Why aren't you walking faster? All these little subtle ways that no matter what I choose, the hand holding and walking by your side or quietly walking 10 feet behind you, neither one creates resolution or happiness. I did a bunch of research on it. I went on all these different websites. So much of it is just manipulative behavior. And there's so much double bind. I know there's a current dilemma right now in women's athletics with the trans community and wanting trans women to be able to compete with cisgender women in athletics. And the physical reality is that penis bodies and vagina bodies are nothing alike. And all the modifications of a penis body in the world will still, will not change it enough to not have an, an unfair advantage in athletics. And so the hard part for anyone that voices opposition to this is that you're immediately called anti-trans. So if you voice opposition, you're ostracized. If you stay quiet, you're ostracized. Depends on who's noticing how you respond. And as an athlete, I get asked this all the time. I am very, very openly trans supportive, but the trans issue and the gender issue, even in, in cisgendered people is far from black and white. It's so gray. And so a lot of people just step back and do nothing. So there's no right choice because no matter what I say, if I take a side, which I have refused to do, if I take a side without, you know, just spew out a side, then I'm immediately the anti of the other side. And sometimes one side can have several sides within it, but this is the double bind. And this is a function of people who are imposed upon. So the imposers are usually the ones who institute the double bind, but then you create a reality for the people being imposed upon where they have no control whatsoever. And so either become very, very, very dysfunctional or rigid and create double binds themselves. <laughs> have I confused you all yet? 
But these are ways that I see double binds. You know, the double bind is used for control without open coercion. It just creates uneven footing. Not surprisingly, the movie Gaslight was on TV the other day. And Gaslight is the ultimate double bind. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, but it's where the term gaslighting comes from. There's a couple and the husband very much wants to have his wife deemed crazy and have her sent away. And he's very well respected. And so you see a lot of scenes where he's creating his respect in the community and his wife sees this. And, and then you have the dynamic of the time period where women were still at that point properties of their husbands. And, and so you have this whole dynamic where her voice is minimal to begin with. And then you have the collusion of all the people in the household doing what their boss is telling them. If she asks why the lights are dim, say they're not. And so the lights will be dim for a few days and he'll deny it. And then he'll make them bright again. And she'll say, oh my God, thank God the lights are bright. And everybody will say, what are you talking about? They're the same as they've always been. She begins to question her own reality. Am I losing my eyesight? Am I hallucinating? And nothing she does, calling out her husband, you're doing this on purpose. No, I'm not. She has no proof that that could be happening. Nothing she does is going to fix the situation. So it's not just a conflict between two people and choosing who to please. Sometimes the conflict is within yourself. And what do you do? And what happens is the logical option sometimes is to get out, right? Let's leave. I just need to run away. But in that time period, you're married to your husband. You can't run away. That's your property. Well, who's going to pay for your, who's going to support you, right? Leaving is not an option. This brings up two other examples of creating a double bind. One is you're thinking about buying something, but you're on the fence and you, part of you doesn't really want to buy it. So the person selling it says, well, here's why you should buy it. It's this, it's this and this. So how do you want to pay for it? Cash or credit? They don't say, or come back tomorrow and think about it. They give you, all right, so let's make a choice. How do you, I'll wrap this up while you decide how you want to pay for it. Saying, no, thank you. I'll come back tomorrow dissipates. And now you just have to choose how you're going to pay for it. That's a more insidious double bind. There's another one that's a bit clear. And that would be interrogative processes. So it could be torture or psychological torture or police interrogations. It can't happen this way now, but you have a suspect and they may be innocent. They may be guilty. And the interrogators will pound them. Tell the truth and we'll let you go. You want to go home, don't you? You're tired. You want to drink a water? You want this? Then tell the truth. So if they are telling the truth, but they're not believed, they can continue to tell the truth and they will continue to be thirsty and continue to be, continue to be confined in the room until they tell the truth. Of course, when they do tell the truth, they're lying. Okay, what they want to hear is that I did it. So I'm just going to say I did it so that I can get out of here. Okay, fine, I did it. We know you did it. And then you get thrown in jail and now you're convicted of a crime you didn't commit because you were put into a double bind where the only way out, what you thought was to say what they wanted to hear, but that doesn't get you out at all. That gets you into a whole different kind of trouble. Like sometimes when you really are on the fence, there's no way to, to fix it. And ultimately what happens is nothing gets fixed. You know, putting the wrong people in jail doesn't fix anything. Confusing a child so much about what love is and how to manifest it, that they have no ability to separate themselves from this unhealthy love that they're stuck in creates very, very, very confused adults who, for the most part, can turn out okay, but carry these struggles into their own relationships. I am relationship-less right now, meaning I am here with Kenny and we are raising children together, but we are housemates and it's all I have in me. <laughs> I, I just look back on my life and, and how I've been hurt and the people I've hurt. And I, I don't have it in me right now to invest in any sort of relationship that involves any sort of romantic involvement or intimacy. No, thank you. No, thank you. I am doing the best I can to mother Jack. And I'm watching now and I listen and watch to what we say to him and what he thinks and how he interprets. 
Does it mean I'm doing a better job? I don't know. I do know that he's two, two and a half. And as articulate as he is, he still has no, the front of his brain is still non-existent, right? So he can't step out of himself and see how that would feel. Empathy doesn't exist there. It just isn't in their head yet. They can be taught right from wrong in very black and white ways, which gives people like me and Gracie and Kenny extreme power. And we have to be careful with that. For me, what I come away from <laughs> and why I felt the desire to share all this is I feel like this is just something we all can relate to. And it doesn't mean we're all mental or all screwed up in the head or all out there hurting, hurting the people in our lives. But I think every one of you listening could sit back and think of a double bind situation that you've been in where you felt powerless to do the right thing or didn't even know what the right thing was, or when you've created the double bind. And the fact that I can look at a double bind that I created in the past 10 days, right? Makes me feel terrible. Gracie's desire to help Kenny comes from a desire to help me. The best way when she sees me trying to get something done and Kenny is in charge of Jack and he's not following through, she scoops up and helps. My immediate reaction is that just helps Kenny to continue not to do what he said he'd do. It's not helping him get up earlier. It's not helping him do all the things I think he should do, right? It's just perpetuating a problem, except that makes Gracie winless because all she wants is to make me happy and she isn't because I get mad at what she does. I'm not mad at her. As a matter of fact, I'm very grateful to her, but I've created a double bind. So Carolina had to, had to really walk me through this and ultimately say, look, if them helping each other helps you, let them help each other because you're also getting helped. And it was, I just had to step out of it and, and really look at it. And it was profound. When I look at children in dynamics, really unhealthy family dynamics, abusive dynamics, Roy's situation. And I look at, I look at children in these families and I look at a lot of the children that I've taught and parents that I know and child loss families talk about a double bind. Nothing you do will fix anything. It's like my whole life could be a double bind. Nothing I do is going to make me feel better. Some things will make me feel worse. And there's that time of hopelessness where nothing, no choice feels like the right choice. It can be a quadruple bind. Once you can step out and look at that dynamic, it's been mind boggling for me. It's been utterly mind opening and mind boggling. And it provides me the third option, which is to get out. We all have the chance to get out of a double bind. They're most effective when, when the person inflicting the double bind is in the piece of control. Like my trauma bond with Roy is so profound. And I say is because it, it still is. I, I don't ever, ever want to be connected to Roy again, but I ache for the times that I thought things were good. You know, like, like I panic about that still. That's a trauma bond. And those take years, years to get away. Children can have trauma bonds with their parents. They may not love their parents at all, but they function in a way that supports the trauma bond because that was the person that was in charge of them when they weren't able to be in charge of themselves. It's a long process and you go through a lot of revelations with it. But my trauma bond with Roy gave him incredible power. He knew how desperate I was. He knew that he could stir me up enough to get me to act really upset and frantic and crying, that he could call me crazy and say, you know what, you're too crazy, I'm done with you. And then he can say, well, if you hadn't acted so crazy, I would still talk to you. <laughs> so we're in the holiday season now where so many manipulative behaviors come to the surface because nobody likes the holidays, right? Everything is a tragedy and a trauma. And I say that, you know, tongue in cheek with a smile on my face because it's true for more people than not. 
it's very, very hard to step out of what's going on in your life to just enjoy the beauty of a holiday. And I was able to do that on Thanksgiving. I, I went through Thanksgiving with no alcohol. That's the first Thanksgiving without alcohol that I can remember. A long time, a long, long time. We had a wonderful time. We really did have a wonderful time. We all could enjoy one another's company. The food was delicious. It was nice to see my family just long enough, right? But that was a day after hearing from Carolina about the double bind and really talking about all that went into creating that. So that's my podcast for today. You'll be hearing this on, I think it's December 12th right now, which means I've completed four days of recording the book, Motherland for Audible. How exciting. Yeah, when you hear this, I will have already recorded it. So who knows? But anyway, I don't get a lot of feedback from my listeners unless I tend to run into them someplace or reach out in an email. So I would really, really love to hear from you, from you on this episode, The Double Bind, because it helps me. It helps me to notice them as well in my life, places I might not see them, times where, where I'm feeling choiceless that I don't even really realize it's the existence of a double bind. I would lo love for you to reach out, either an Instagram message or a Facebook message or a text message. You can send me an email. Sign up for my email list. I do a weekly email and really it's just a chatty update in real time of what's going on with me. I always include a fun picture to talk about the blog. That's a great way to correspond and connect with me as well. There's nothing worse than feeling powerlessness or feeling damned if I do or damned if I don't, or just feeling like nothing we do is right. It's a terrible way to feel. And I think we all feel that way more often than we, than we acknowledge. So be good to yourself today. <laughs> Go look at a double bind. <laughs> look it up and see if you can relate to it in your life. Be good to someone else. Maybe relinquish the double bind that you've imposed on someone else. Huh. Easier said than done, by the way. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.